Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. Yes, and we didn't run very much today, so let's just skip the insert witty banter here and go straight to uh, what is astonishing you this week. Let's see. This past Sunday had something happen for the first time in 25 plus years of ordained ministry. I've been preaching since I was 19. That was 30 something years ago. I've never had this happen. How's that for a lead in? That is good for a lead in. I'm, I'm, I'm resisting the temptation to insert my self into the, what happened? <laughs> and it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with the sermon. So as you know, we have been partnering with a group called Project Outpour to mm -hmm. provide um, showers and other hygiene um, uh, supplies for our neighbors who are experiencing and working through a season of homelessness. And uh, part of the blessing for us, uh, again, is that people who have been a category, the homeless, right, mm -hmm. are now people with names and stories and histories and struggles that we know. Not only do we know them, we, we have come to love um, these folks in our community, in our neighborhood. And one particular man, uh, his name is, is Doug, and I personally, <laughs> I, I love Doug. Um, when I see him come up the church driveway into the parking lot, it makes me happy to see him, makes me happy to talk with him. Um, in any other context, um, I think Doug and I would be friends. Um, I just like this guy. Lately, he's been leaving us saying, I'll see you on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And we've been very clear, like this this relationship that we have is not transactional. Mm -hmm. You owe us nothing. We we want nothing from you but to be your friend and do not feel like you have to, quote, pay us back by coming to, quote, our church. That Our mission is not to get you in our church. It is the love of Christ that moves us to love on our neighborhood. And so we... Yeah. I'm very aware, maybe overly self-conscious, that as a pastor, when I enter certain environments, I just have a sense that people perceive me like they would a used car salesman, right? Kind of, um, they're they're waiting yeah. for the manipulation because mm -hmm. they're 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 on guard because they think I'm trying to sell them something or mm -hmm. get something out of them. And so I may overdo it. I don't invite a lot of people to church because I don't want them to feel that pressure. My relationship with you is not based on that. And so for weeks, Doug has been saying, I'll see you on Sunday, see you on Sunday, and no expectation that he would show mm -hmm. up. And, and he's been doing that for weeks. But this past Sunday, after the call to worship, after some initial prayers, after the singing, I finished the morning announcements. I just called for the offering and I was about to sit down and I saw him mm -hmm. walk into the lobby and it was, 
it made me so happy that I could hardly stand it. But I also noticed that he was reluctant to come into the sanctuary. He was, I could barely see him. I knew it was him and he was kind of peeking in. And so I called for one of the elders, Robin, who knows him well. Mm -hmm. I think she introduced me to him. And I called her up front and I said, Doug is in the lobby, go get him. Mm -hmm. And she went and she sat with him and he stayed for all of worship. And then after worship, I went back there, gave him a hug and told him how happy I was to see him. And, um, and Robin shared with me after, um, later on that day, she said, I, I want you to know, I can hardly um, share this. She said, I, I want you to know that when, you know, Doug was sitting in the back and, you know, he heard you call for the offering and he opened up a, a little bottle that had some change in it and he put some change in the offering plate. And it was too, it was just too good, too rich, too wonderful um, for me to really take in in the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, you and I have been preaching this series about the cross mm -hmm. and the need for the church to walk in the way of the cross. The cross isn't simply the blood of Jesus shed for my forgiveness. It is that, but it's also it's also our marching orders that we are to be a people who are self-giving and vulnerable and the church often is not perceived in that way mm -hmm. and i think that the whole experience on sunday gave me such joy not simply because doug showed up and it was another person that we could count right mm -hmm. it was the idea that maybe just just maybe by the grace and goodness of God. We have become a place that is safe for people like Doug. And that, that makes me so incredibly happy. Whether this church continues in ministry for another 50 years or even 10 years, if, if we get to that place and our neighbors who are the most vulnerable, the, those who are written off by um, others in our city, if they see us as safe, man, that's, that, that's such a win that I, 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 I yeah, it, I, I just want to explode with joy. Yeah, I mean, I think that what is so sacred about that and hard to name is um, <clears throat> what you, what what is true is that Christ breaks down the dividing walls. And so often in our congregations, we just, we segregate by wealth or mm -hmm. race or, you know, culture in ways that the dividing walls I mean, I think they are broken down, but we don't know it because we don't, we don't ever have any relationship across anyone across that barrier. And so when, um, Doug can come into the community, not as a project, yes. not as a mission opportunity, but can enter into the community as all people enter the community as, you know, a, a human created in the image of God who has gifts 
and struggles and is on a journey, who is being saved, you know, according to Paul's words, in being saved by the power of the cross, just like me, just like you, just like everyone else there. And when the when the church really understands that, look, look, where the world looks at people and says, okay, what do I see? I see your ethnicity. I see your educational level. I see your occupation. I see your gender. I see your age. And these are the things that define you to me. And what we know is that in Christ Jesus, none of those things define us anymore. They're still true, but they don't define us anymore. There's a deeper, um, there's a deeper identity. We're being born again. We're being renewed in Christ. And so there's this, the thing that unites us is more important than any of the things that differentiate us and divide us. And that's how we have not uniformity, but unity. And so what's really beautiful about, and and I just think it, you know, it's interesting and we've um, had some, when those things get messy that's when I think the spirit has really um, had had its way with us. When we're saying like, well, what what does it mean to have a person in our community who's unhoused? And what does it mean to sit down and have Bible study together? And, and this person know, you know, you know that at the end of it, this person's going to just, you're going to get in your car and drive away. And this person's going to, and like the discomfort that is created by that reality, that is generative. Um and I think it makes us question, well, why, you know, why is this? And does this please God? And is this the way it has to be? And um, I, I think, you know, that's when when the spirit really is able to use us as a catalyst. And I think for too long, you know, the church on both sides of the culture wars has seen people outside of its bo- bounds of its self-imposed bounds as like projects or opportunities, right? So if you're in an evangelical church, you see people who are unchurched as sort of like opportunities for growth. And I think if you're in a progressive church, you often see people who are not part of your community as like a project, like, oh, I need to get this person into, you know, an educational program, or I need to get them sobered up, or I need to get them access to housing. And, and it's not that meeting needs is wrong. And it's certainly not that inviting people into a community is wrong. But understanding that, that the people are, are sort of like, objects that you enact your faith upon, yes, as opposed to people who like you, by the power of the spirit are being written into a story that God is the author of. And that just shifts things. And I know that, you know, um, at the Grove, we've been really um, blessed by, by the folks that God brings to our community from all different walks of life. And um, one of a a really beloved and treasured members of our community was um, experiencing homelessness when we met them. And it, it took me a while to really understand and accept, and I don't feel comfortable about this. It's just, I think it's true (laughs) that this person is in our community. And that does not mean that it is our community's responsibility to get this person housing. It, what this person has asked is to 
be a part of our community and we welcome them in to be part of our community. And we are open to the ways that God calls our lives to intersect. Um, But, you know, if a person in our community gets cancer, we don't go, oh, now we need to like cure their cancer for them. We, we say you're walking down this road and we want to walk down it with you as your friends. And there's ways that you might invite us in to do certain things, but sort of this idea that like, we know, you know, we are, we have a certain amount of money and cultural agency. And so we are now responsible for you. I mean, that's just colonialism. And I think that's what was so helpful about the early church was because they believed that time was short, they were able to see one another as people and not as problems or opportunities. And then as, um, as they would say, a script, you know, the Lord tarries, all of a sudden they're like, all right, well now we're going to be here for a while. And so, um, we start bringing that, you know, we both preached about, you know, sort of the the wisdom of the world that the cross reveals as foolishness, this idea that, you know, life's a big hierarchy and you got to um, either use or take responsibility for the people under you or, you know, serve or get um, resources from the people above you. You know, we started bringing that inside the church. And so, um, you know, I was just looking the other day on social media of a, I don't know, it's just interesting to me. There's a there's a collaboration between a church and a um, nonprofit that helps people in recovery. And the nonprofit was celebrating that 20 men in recovery had chosen to be baptized. And there was a picture of every single man coming up from the baptismal waters. And I don't know how I you know, I, I don't know how I, that I have complicated feelings about that because I certainly don't dis, I don't, it's none of my business to have an opinion. The Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit will do. And I certainly, you know, celebrate and rejoice in the goodness of God moving in the lives of everybody involved in this story. But, but I feel uncomfortable with this incredibly sacred moment becoming a marketing opportunity for either the church or the nonprofit. Um, I don't know. I mean, that seems. Yeah, I I agree. Um, My first thought was a picture was taken of them during their baptism for them, for their own memory. Right. Which is Um, very different. Which is very different than, um, using them as a marketing ploy. Well, Absolutely. and I think the challenge is, you know, I'm sure they asked them, but the question is how free do you feel to say no when there's this huge power imbalance and you're involved in this residential program, right? I mean, it just does seem, Listen, I don't know. I, when I was in seminary, I was the only African-American Presbyterian at this particular Presbyterian seminary and uh, there were many times when um, promotional materials were being developed and photographers and videographers were on campus and they made a beeline to me. Mm-hmm. And many of my classmates were astonished that I often said, no, mm-hmm. do not take my picture. You do not have my permission to use because I, I felt like an object. Mm-hmm. And, but that, 
that was after many experiences of being used and only seeing it in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's tough because obviously if the reverse had happened, if the university had said, make sure you don't get any pictures of Lando in the group, like that would not have been okay, right? So I think, right. I mean, but I, but I know I completely, I mean, I have heard that story from other friends um, who end up being in majority white institutions and then find themselves featured in every campaign because the, the institution wants to make itself look like something it isn't. And yet, but, it, but if you had come to me and, and had a, and had a conversation, Hey, we are really wanting to move in this direction. We think it would be helpful. Would you be willing to help right, us sure. in this way? That's, that That's gives different. me much more agency, right? Right. Right. And if someone had come to you and said, hey, it's really our deepest desire and we know it's the heart of God to increase the diversity of this community so that this community looks more like the kingdom of God. And we think that one thing that will help people of color feel like they could belong is when they look at our promotional materials, they see that they would not be the first or they only. Would it be okay if we... Yeah, what we're talking about reminds me of what you and I experienced when our churches went through that transformation project through a presbytery, and the consultant said to us, every church thinks they are the friendliest church Mm -hmm. in the city, right? And what people outside of your church are looking for is not a friendly church, but a place where they can make friends. Right. And so often we are so focused on getting people to come back, getting people to stay, getting people in the building that we do not build actual relationships with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, people don't want to be in a friendly place. They want, they want friends. Yeah. Um, yes. Well, um, I'm so, really, I mean, I do think it, what we are is a spiritual community. And so the, the fact that a relationship um, like the one that I think the spirit is making between Doug and your community and the fact that it is growing is spiritually very powerful and, um, and really something to celebrate because it does like, I love it when people have relationships in their church and they know for sure, but Jesus, I wouldn't know you. That to me is how we go, okay, this is how I know that this is real. It's not wishful thinking. And that's, I think the problem when you are in a community and like you're, it's the place you live and the place you go to school and the place you work and the place you have church, like all of these people would already be your people, even if Jesus weren't real. But if you are in a community where you're like, oh my goodness, I, my life is being deepened and enriched and I, and we have love for one another and it defies all the lies and divisions of the world. That's how I know, oh, the spirit of the Lord is alive and in this place, but it has to be not just, we share a sanctuary on Sunday morning. It has to, to your point, be like, we have this, this ground that then leads us into actual relationships. And it's those relationships that is where truth bears fruit. And, um, and I mean, it's, yeah. Anyway, so that's, so what's astonishing you? Um, I mean, two things are astonishing me and what is one, the fact that we're still friends after last week. (laughs) (laughs) Nope. Nope. That does not astonish me. You know why? Because you're solid gold Hinton. And so that does not astonish me in the slightest. Um, I, I, 
I want to, there are so many good and beautiful, hope-filled, precious and gracious things happening in the world. And I, in my world and in the world, and I have awe and reverence for them. And, and sometimes the things that astonish me are just the things that are not good and they need to be named. And so there are two things that astonish me. And I guess I think the point is to say, not to rant about them, but these things that are not good are also so common and ubiquitous that it's easy to no longer feel astonished by them. And it is important to, um, to just shake yourself awake and say, just because this is normal and just because this is typical does not mean that it should not be shocking. And so, um, in reverse order of importance. The first is we live, uh, well, our churches are in Mecklenburg County. You no longer live in Mecklenburg County, but I do, which is the county that surrounds the city of Charlotte. And um, it just had a, a big tax reevaluation, um, the first in, I don't know, two or three years. And property values, by and large, have risen exponentially, which means tax rates on people have risen exponentially. The averages, I've I've heard... I've read 58% and 51%. So these are residences and businesses. Um, and in, in certain corridors in our city, corridors that have historically been affordable places of affordable housing, which there's, there is none in Charlotte anymore, but you know, pro- property rates have, have risen sometimes two and 300%. Like it, it's insane, which means there are a lot of people who are going to lose their homes mm-hmm. simply because they cannot pay the taxes on them. They might be paid off, but they're, they're going to be gone. They're not going to be able to live there anymore. Um, so it, it is a huge thing, but there is a glaring exception to this. And that is that all of the country clubs in Mecklenburg County saw their tax rates dramatically decrease and their property values dramatically decrease. And what the county has said, well, first of all, it was buried in a lot of the public release. And, and I think a lot of people looked for this, but the person who first raised it to my attention is a pastor named Greg Gerald, um, whose community is uh, called QC family tree. And, and he just does a really good job of, um, looking at how um, the city and the county works and naming trends, and so I'm I'm really grateful to him and 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 so he pointed that out and asked some questions and they said, well, hey, when you they said country clubs are different, and so we um, get an outside appraiser to appraise them and they use a different standard than for businesses and homes, and it's not the value of the land. It is the amount of income likely to generate. And so these, they're three major country clubs. They all decreased in value. Um, and I'm like big increase, like like from 10 million to 5 million, like just craziness. And, and like there's one country club and I might get these, I, I might get the details wrong, but I do not have the gist of the story. wrong. I think it was Myers Park Presbyterian. Not, not, sorry, excuse me. That was a slip of the tongue. Myers Park Country Club. And they're... Um, the country club decreased in value in some kind of crazy number. Um, I I want to say like now the value is $10 million, which this is just some of the most valuable desirable property. I in- think you're thinking of um, 
the Quail Hollow. Well, that one also did. But now I got a different story for them. But Myers Park Country Club just did $30 million of renovations on property that theoretically is only worth $10 million. So, I mean, that's just insane. Quail Hollow Country Club also dramatically decreased in value. And the the um, rationale was it is not a very good country club. Like it's a medium grade golf club. They just hosted a PGA event and they were just listed in Golf Digest as one of the premier golf um, courses in the United States of America. But when it comes to taxes, they're a second rate. So, so I just, um, I think it's really important for people of faith to say, no, this is not, this is not okay. It is not okay to have one standard for a private residence and one standard for a mom and pop small business and a completely different standard for a country club that is exclusively set aside for the wealthiest and most powerful people in our community. That's not right. And if taxes are the way that we fund the common good, then it is not right that a a senior citizen on Medicare is paying a higher proportion of their income in taxes than a than a country club. Like that's that's not okay. And it is not okay that the leaders of the biggest and most powerful philanthropies in this city are members of those country clubs. Um, you know, that that's the problem with this idea that that charity is a is a is an optional virtue to be celebrated of instead of justice that is required. And so um I just um I'm astonished and I'm astonished that people can stand up and try to convince ordinary people like us that we're just too stupid to understand and and that if we understood more that then we would understand how these were the right property values. Like no, I am many things but I'm not stupid. And there's no way that you are going to convince me that it's my lack of understanding that makes this seem wrong instead of reality, which is, I mean, anyway, so, so that's when you turn on the news this afternoon, five, six o'clock, the leading story will most likely be something like today, a convenience store was robbed at gunpoint by such and such a person. And there will be a lot said about that. Our minds are trained to be outraged and to fear that instead of even seeing this kind of, and I'm going to call it a crime, this kind of crime, you don't hear about it, you don't see it. And when it is brought up. It is, like you just said, quickly dismissed. Yeah. Well, um, I am next week. There's a county commissioner's gathering. And I think this is so. I mean, we've talked before about how there, like, we are pastors, we are not politicians, we are not activists. 
And I have no desire to be a politician or an activist. Like I, I understand, I think I'm growing in understanding of what the unique role of pastor is, but there is some overlap on the Venn diagram. And I do think it's really important. Um, like Greg has done is just to say, Hey, like if you have biblical values around, um, community and covenant and justice, then this is not okay. If we say that we are a Judeo-Christian nation, this is not okay. And this is exactly what, you know, the prophets and Amos and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are, are talking about when they said, like, you are all about Isaiah, you are all about religion, but your hearts are far from me. And the fast that I want is justice and you know i was in like i mean i'm specifically justice for the poor correct and i i was saying and i'm going to this meeting next tuesday even though it's holy week because i think it what is a better way of honoring holy week when jesus walked straight into conflict with the powerful lies that were dominant in his day than to go to a meeting and say like, this isn't right. And the people sitting on the dais, um, again, like people try to hide behind this idea that like, well, it's, we hired an outside appraiser. So it's not, it's not arbitrary. It's, you know, it, this is just the way it is. And this is standard. And this is like, no, no, this is a, that is an, a rationale, a system that's created by people with a certain set of values. And I disagree with those values. And everybody sitting up on the dice, like, I'm not saying it's not legal. Obviously, legal is whatever they decide is legal. But I'm saying you are responsible to either raise your hand and say, yes, I'm fine with this, or no, I'm not fine with this. And then you know, pay your money and take it and ride the ride. But you're not allowed to say, well, I agree this is wrong, but there's nothing I can do about it. No, ma'am. No, sir. You are an elected official. You are either going to vote to put these valuations in place or vote against them. You can modify them. What you can't do is say, you don't have any power. You can't pilot your way out of this. And I was by this, just I thinking mean, pilot. Wash your hands. Wash you cannot hands. wash your hands out of this. This is a problem. And I do think as people of faith, you don't have to be ugly. You don't have to be mean. Nobody on the dais is your enemy. But just to say, I'm sure there's a way, there is obviously a way that you can rationalize this. I'm here to say, I don't think that this is, I don't think this is just, I don't think this is faithful, and I do not think this is good for the community. And I will say, you know, because of the way that the state house rationalizes not fully funding public education in this country, in I'm sorry, in this state, even though we have a $4 billion rainy day fund, so the county often has to step in the gap. I'll say right now, my 11th grader does not have a biology teacher, just doesn't have one. The teacher left and they have online assignments and they sit in a room. Like this is gone. My eighth grade doesn't have a math teacher just does not have one teacher left there's no teacher to hire so it is all online the county commissioners are going to evaluate cms the school system on the basis of the test that my kids take without having teachers and my kids come from a, a a home that we can backfill a lot of resources but i mean here's a shocker they're not doing as well in their math and science classes without as an instructor. And so I'm just saying like, 
when when you've got people in country clubs whose kids are in private schools, so their kids have math and science teachers, and their country club, you know, that country club isn't paying its fair share, and then the county can just say, well, we're going to take more money away from the schools because you all aren't producing results, but also we've defunded the teacher pipeline, and we refuse to pay teachers a living wage so that you have teachers who are saying, look, I am committed to this work, but I am tired of being beaten up and excoriated in the press, and also, like, I need a retirement fund, or here's an idea, I can't pay my property taxes on the salary that I earned living in the city. And I'm a, or maybe I'm a woman of childbearing age, and I work in a system that gives zero maternity leave. Teachers don't get any maternity leave. I mean, then you, so I'm just saying like, it's a problem. It's not benign. Um, and, and, I think it's really important for people of faith to say, I'm astonished at this and it's not okay. Like, we can't just say, well, the system is going to be rigged and that's the way it is. No, when there are like clear, like there's so much clarity in the disparity in this particular case, we we just need to rise up and talk about it. And my segue perfectly talking about schools into the other thing I'm astonished about. And I'll just say like, I'm astonished that you know, there was a school shooting yesterday in Another Nashville, one. Tennessee, and three children were killed and three staff members were killed and the shooter um, was killed by the police and the shooter had um, two automatic assault rifles and a handgun. And, um, I, you know, I'm... I, people... I, it is hard... To, ev- to feel anything about that because it happens so often that you can't, you can't be surprised, like you can't be astonished because, because it happens all the time. I mean, these were nine-year-old children um, at a private Christian school and people are going to try to make the story about everything except assault rifles. And the truth is, Assault rifles are military grade weapons that I, we have a, a friend who was enlisted in the army and like infantry soldiers are not even allowed to carry those weapons because the military says they're too indiscriminate and there's too much chance of civilian casualties. So trained infantry soldiers are not allowed to carry these weapons because they are too brutal and you have them sold with no, just almost no um, limits in this country. And I just, I don't have an emotional reaction. I mean, there's a, there's an assault weapon shop. I could walk to it from my house. That is less than half a mile from one, two, three, four, five schools, three of which my daughters go to. Assault, just like stop by, drive through literally and pick up an assault rifle. And, and people act like this is just the way it is and the way it has to be. And it isn't the way it is. And it isn't the way it has to be. It's the way that we accept. And to just say, I, I don't need to know anything about the shooter, except that they had an assault. They had two assault rifles. And now these children and these staff members are dead. And not for nothing, this is another reason why you have... Um, teachers wanting to leave their profession because, and, and emotionally as a, as a person, as a mother of school age children, 
you know, the, the temptation to detach is so great because there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about my children dying in a school shooting. Like every day when I kiss my children goodbye, I think about the fact that they could go to school and die that day. And like, I won't let my kids go to the mall because there are often acts of violence in the mall. And I just don't feel safe there, but I don't have any choice. Like my kids have to go to school. And so I just think it's really important to recultivate the astonishment because it's hard. I mean, it's like in, it was, would be impossible to be astonished at a crucifixion if you lived in the day and time of Jesus, because it was a thing that happened as a regular occurrence. And yet it's a crime against humanity. And I think, you know, the fact that this is just, that we have just accepted that this is just the way the world is. This is just how evil manifests itself and there's nothing we can do about it is, um, a lie is a lie. And I think that the way that, and the, and we have also accepted the lie that we are powerless. And I think the reality is if, if American, I mean, I really do think that if American voters said we will vote out of office, anyone who does not pass some kind of gun control, they, those politicians would be gone. But the truth is there are a lot of people in this country who, I mean, they do not want gun control. And they do feel like it is acceptable for a certain number of people and even children to die every day because they feel at the end of the day that their salvation lies in their ability to access assault weapons. And that, and that's the wisdom of this age, um, that you make peace through violence. And I think for, for people of faith to understand that, like, this is deeply spiritual and, and we have to understand that we have to understand the cross that Jesus defeated those powers, not by destroying them, but by making himself vulnerable to them. And that's just something that it's really hard for us to see because we, it's a it's unbelievable. And yet it's the central message of our, of our faith. And we, and we have to ponder it. Yeah. We can definitely do something about this if we wanted to. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed that we can, get together, have a conversation about the possibility of banning TikTok because it's in the nat a national interest, but we can't have a serious conversation about guns for the national health, the national flourishing and well-being. Well, and I think the reality is for some people in power, it is in their interest for there to continue to be school shootings sure. because they want um, to dismantle public education because they want um, to make people feel not safe because their power requires people believing that these particular leaders and these leaders alone can make them safe. And so every time a horrific thing happens, it actually is in their power interests mm -hmm. and, and they're not, they're not interested in disrupting it. And so I think it's really important for us as people of faith to say, you know, we are followers of a peacemaker and you know, when we, I mean, Jesus said, you're going to beat your swords into plowshares. And what Jesus said about swords, he for darn sure said, would have said about guns does say about guns. And we need to understand that. Like, is it risky? Do we make ourselves more vulnerable by forswearing that kind of access to weapons? You bet we do. Um, and I think, you know, we say, we think that following Jesus means we get to be safe and it doesn't, it means we get to be saved. And that's, those are two different things. Mm. That's good. 
So what are you thinking about? Well, I just talked, so you talk. What are you thinking about? (laughs) For the past few weeks, I've been listening to a series of interviews um, featuring young adults who have left the church. Um, the, the, The series is called why we don't go and it's uh, from the jude 3 it, podcast the jude 3 project uh the jude 3 project is fascinating to me uh it's both a podcast and uh, a video series that you can find on youtube the jude 3 project was wait started- can we just spell just for people jude is j-u-d-e yes. jude like the book of the bible yes and as a matter of fact their mission comes from jude verse 3 in the new testament which talks about um contending for the faith that's been delivered to the saints. And so it is an apologetics ministry, and apologetics is all about the defense of the Christian faith. But uh, their approach is different, if you are familiar with, with the history of apologetics, because Jude 3 is... Um, focused on and it is featuring uh, people of African descent. Uh, The the work is for the whole church, but this is by and and for uh, people of African descent. It was started by a woman named Lisa Fields, uh, who interestingly uh, earned a master's degree from Liberty University. It was a very conservative school. And what I find fascinating about the Jude 3 Project is that they really cling to an orthodox version of the faith and yet are very serious about decolonizing it, looking at the history of racism and sexism uh, uh, that has come with so much Christianity. And, and if you are if you are a partisan in the culture wars, you'll you'll be challenged by them, because if you're really progressive, if you if you, if you wear that label, initially when you hear um, folks from the Jew Three Project, you will hear very traditional Christian language, and if you are uh, if you self-identify as a conservative in the culture wars, then you will hear in the Jew Three Project. Um, they will often land in uh, places that you might consider too progressive um, or too liberal. And so they have this wonderful, I think beautiful, and from my perspective, true um, uh, perspective. I'm, I'm a person that, you know, if you hear me preach, uh, you know, I, I, may, I may sound very, very traditional, uh, but then my conclusions may be, oftentimes are, pretty progressive. And that is because I'm intentional about hanging on to the faith that my ancestors had on the continent before the transatlantic slave trade, the faith that carried them through the slave trade, the faith that carried them through uh, Jim Crow. And I, I think there is... There's just the heart of the Christian faith that that is very traditional, that is liberating. So anyway, that's the Jude 3 Project. So they've been doing a series of interviews with young adults asking them why they left the church. And most of them left during um, COVID, 
right? And so many of our congregations across the country have experienced a loss in people, you know, following COVID. And they've said a lot of things in these uh, interviews, but the one that really struck me that I've been thinking about is that one of these young adults said, and then others agreed, that the reason they left the church was because during COVID, they saw and experienced the church as being just like every other institution that they knew, concerned primarily about its own survival. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing that. I pressed pause on the video and just sat back in my chair um, because I just felt a weight of conviction, mm -hmm. not only for, you know, regarding my own ministry, but just for the church in general, because I believe that is absolutely true. So much of our energy goes into, let's just, let's just survive. Let's keep the doors open. How can we get our people back? Mm -hmm. It's, it's about us. And again, you and I have been preaching this series about the cross. And, um, one of the things that one, one of the I think the spiritual breakthroughs for me personally, not just as a preacher, but as a disciple of Jesus, um, that I have not uh, just been made aware of how much I need to embrace, embrace this anew is the truth that the cross is a way. It mm -hmm. is a way of life. It is the way of self-giving and vulnerability and sacrifice. And not only is it a way for me, but it is a way for the church. And we have got to um, find the ways the Spirit is calling us to do ministry in our neighborhoods in such a way that it just looks so generous, so self-giving to those who have been written off by the rest of society that just looks foolish to every other institution. Like, why mm -hmm. would you all behave that way? You're, you're going to, you're, you're not going to, you're going to lose all your money, you're going to lose your property if you continue to give it away like that. And I think that's the way of the cross. I think that's the call mm -hmm. of God upon the church right now. And I think sometimes like people know, I think we do know that the cross is about self-giving and sacrifice and loss and failure. I think the challenge is we feel like, okay, that's just the price I have to pay for salvation later. And so we haven't absorbed the real revelation of the cross, which is, yes, death is defeated. Yes, sins are forgiven and reconciliation happens with God spiritually and in eternity but the way it but the cross isn't the medicine we have to swallow before we get to the healing like the way of the cross is understanding and seeing that Jesus actually defeated the powers that put him on the cross on the cross it was on the cross that he defeated yes. them yes. and that that the cross itself was reclaimed by God absorbed into the story of the power of God's goodness and love and hope. And so when we choose to do something that will lead to failure, when we accept the cost, we, we, uh, you know, accept the risk, we, um, we, we, we take the L 
we're not actually being like a proxy savior. We're saying like, this is actually in my own best interest because I believe that it's in these spaces of loss and lack and sacrifice that God pours out a blessing, not just for other people, but for me, right? So that what I'm doing when I pick up my cross and follow Jesus is actually my own path of freedom and liberation and blessing. It's not about me being a savior for other people. It's not about me saying like, oh, well, life here is just going to suck and I just accept it because someday I'll be happy in heaven. It's about saying like, no, I actually believe today with me, paradise, that happens on the cross, that the cross is the key into the kingdom, which is actually here among us. And I think, I mean, what young people, what people and what young people are saying is, I don't see a different value system in the church than outside of the church. And and I think that's a really, you know, that's... It's fair. It's fair. I, I mean, I think, and whatever, whatever, even if you think, well, that's not true and here's why, it certainly is true that that's what people are perceiving. And you can't argue with that. Like people get to tell the truth about their own experience. And so to if we believe um, that that we are called to welcome and share the good news with all people, then, I mean, we better have some good news to share. And I think what people outside the church often see is you people inside this organization are scrambling just as hard as we are to get an advantage, to look out for yourself, to protect yourselves. So I don't, I can do that on my own, right? I don't, what do you have to offer me that an automatic rifle and a country club can't also can't offer me. I get better food at the country club, right? So I think, I mean, that's just really fair and we can only hear that and see that if we actually care not about defending ourselves but about being used by God and I think for me you know the big shift the big pace of deliverance for me personally you know I talk a lot about the you know the the moment on the rock and the rain and blah 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 is coming back to the moment and realizing like I care so much about being a pastor I care so much about not just my church but the church But saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The beginning of all of this is you as a person seeing Jesus and answering the invitation, come and follow me, which then leads to a decision point where you say, God, I'm giving my life to you. And that surrender, if it comes with qualifications, is not a surrender. And so then when you say like, look, my job isn't to get what I want. My job isn't to be safe. My job isn't to look good or to be respectable. My job by my own choice is to follow Jesus. And when I look at the stories of the disciples, especially in scripture and in the early church, they don't get to be homeowners and pass down generational wealth and have a 401k. And I can believe and respect someone saying like, okay, then I don't want that. Fair enough. Because turning away from the actual way of Jesus gets you closer to discipleship than following a lie and believing that that is actually salvation. So 
but I, I think that's the problem is a lot of people are, are twisting and contorting the gospel and calling truth a lie because the lie will give them the kind of status and security and comfort that this world has to offer. And and the way of Jesus doesn't make those promises to us. It promises us that we don't need those things to have abundant life. And, and the only way to know that is to come and see. But I think that's why people who either are completely shut out and so they know, man, I'm not getting that stuff from this world no matter what, so I'm up for an alternative. Or conversely, people who have everything the world has to offer and who recognize I am miserable this is this is no way to live. You know, people on those two extremes can actually, I think, find a path to Jesus a little more easily than a lot of us in America anyway, who are in the middle, who just fall for the lie of like, okay, but if I just get a little bit more, then I'll have enough. And if I lose everything, anything, I won't have enough. Like we, we are still seduced by the lie that there is something other than Jesus that can give us abundant life. And, and that's what is helpful about these times as difficult and troubling as they are is that they bring us to a place of of fork in the road where you have to make those kinds of decisions because if not you can just track along through life just fine trying to hang on to the lie and i think the truth is and and this is again like all the prophets keep calling the people to the people of israel to um you they're saying like look you say that you, yahweh is your god and you go to the temple and you worship Yahweh. And I, I'm not, you know, and you have a certain feeling about yourself and about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But you deliberately and consistently break the covenant. So it's like saying, I'm a vegetarian except I eat bacon. Like, you're not. Because the essence of being a vegetarian is you don't eat the flesh of other animals. So be a vegetarian, don't be a vegetarian, but don't lie to yourself and say you're a vegetarian when you eat bacon. And that's what the prophets keep saying to the people of Israel is like, you are not in covenant with God in spite of all the worshiping that you do because you trod on the necks of the poor, because you like you've got unjust scales in the marketplace, because you, you know, you're not following the covenant and the essence of being a follower of Yahweh is not keeping the covenant perfectly, but is keeping the covenant. And it's what Jesus says to the Pharisees, like you tithe on mint and rue, but you neglect the whole weight of the law and the prophets because you don't care about justice and righteousness. You just care about the appearance of the thing. And I do think in a lot of churches, and I think Presbyterians are super guilty of this, like we're all about how do we do things decently in order? How do we like how do we have a have a what's an okay song to sing like this song is okay and oh, man, that song preaching. is not okay and this is how we do a, a roll call and every year and how we release a member or receive a member but we're not actually paying attention to has anyone come to faith in Jesus or actually are our lives in the church different than the lives of people who don't follow Jesus? And that's not about looking down on them. It's about deep, brave self-inventory of like, do I live like I believe salvation comes from God alone? So let the ushers come forward. The sermon has been preached. <laughs> we will now receive the offering. Following that, we will sing just as I am for people to come, come to the Lord because that, that's a word. No, I, listen, 
we need to preach a sermon entitled, I'm a vegetarian. But, but I, I eat bacon. bacon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the that property evaluations are fair, except for the country clubs, which are the most expensive, but they pay less because I'm a vegetarian and I eat bacon. I mean, it's just, no, like this is not... The land in front of the country club is worth three houses on the block in front of the country club are worth combined 10 million. But the entire 250 acres of the country club itself is worth less than 10 million because I'm a vegetarian and I eat bacon. Come on. That just is not the okay. refrain. Wow. Well, I need to. Yeah, I need to work that into my speech at the thing. Anyway, well, this is these are confusing times, except not. Except not. Except right? not, because God tells one story, and the enemy tells one story, and we just need to have discernment. And Yeah, and what gets exposed during times like these are the ways we have believed the lie, mm-hmm. right? And we have to make some hard decisions whether we will continue with the lie or not. Mm-hmm. And that I think that's true of all of us. And mm-hmm. some of us are saying... Nope, I'm fine. <laughs> let's let's leave it as it is. And others are asking, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Right, and I think some people are, would say back to us, would say, look, it sounds like you're talking about works righteousness. It sounds like you're saying you need to live a certain way in order to be saved by Jesus. And I'm not saying that. What I am saying is if you believe in Jesus, then you want to be about a Jesus-shaped life. You want to be about a cruciform life. And if you don't want to walk out the values of Jesus, then you don't believe in the values of Jesus. I'm not saying Jesus won't save you. I'm I'm perilously close to being a universalist, right? So if the only reason you're in it is because you don't want to go to hell when you die, like, let's just be honest about that. But the, again, like you don't have to be perfect or excellent but it's just a matter of if you if do you believe in the values do you, you know when jesus says the beatitudes are you like this sounds terrible or this is challenging to me but i want to live in this kind of world right like that that's the whole truth and i do think a lot of the ways this is why in a lot of communities they'll focus on like really narrow slivers of justice work or really narrow slivers of purity culture because if they can get you to think that those small things are the whole enchilada, then the majority of your life and the world around you can just go unexamined. In our community, one of the things that's come up lately is Bible study. And I love Bible study, love Bible study, love Bible study, but there is this feeling that the problem with our community, our our church life, is that we're not deep enough. And at some level, as much as I love Bible study, that just hasn't been sitting well with me. And it finally dawned on me. It's like, no, going deep isn't our issue. Our issue is doing what we already know. Like we already know, love your neighbor, love your enemies. We, we, there are some things we have, but we have put away in a mental spiritual file and kind of dismissed those things as, as unimportant or secondary or whatever. And we need to pull out what we already know about the way of Jesus 
and walk in them. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think we're looking, we're often just seduced by this idea that, oh, there's something I don't know or something I don't have or something I haven't done. And if I just had that one missing piece, every, you know, it's a consumer it's a consumer mentality as opposed to saying like, look, if you're too good to pray, if you're too good to meditate, if you're too good to worship, if you're too good to serve, if you're too good to do the simple, ordinary things that anyone could do, then you're too good to follow Jesus because that is, that's how when fruit is born in your life by doing these simple, unglamorous, not hard things and when fruit is born in your life in those places, that's how it comes to the glory of God, as opposed to like, oh, I walked the Camino and then my life changed. That that becomes the story of you. So I think that that's a really uh, an important thing is to say like, we know enough to be faithful where we are. And if we're faithful where we are, then God, if God wants, will move us on. So, What are you preaching this week? Do I not get to tell you what I'm thinking about? Oh, uh, did we not do that? No. Okay. Well, what are you well, thinking you, about? You could well, be forgiven no. because I've talked a lot. No, no <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm just mindful that so often we don't get to what we're preaching, and I thought it, this Sunday is a special Sunday. No, and so. this Sunday is my favorite Sunday of the year, which I say a lot, it but is, I really mean it. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. I can I just tell you really quickly what I'm thinking sure, about, absolutely. and then I'll, I'll segue just quickly. I am thinking a lot about in this past Sunday, I made a mistake in my preaching and I know, I mean, I make a lot of mistakes, but, um, I was talking about the wisdom of this age and I was talking about the hierarchy and the ladder, this idea that people with money and power are better and above and people with in poverty and powerlessness are lower and beneath. And I was talking about how that's the wisdom of the world and Jesus overturned that wisdom. And, um, and, and towards the end of the sermon, I was talking about the power of the cross um, to destroy destruction. And I said that the cross destroyed the, and what I, what I meant to say, and I did mean to say this, what I meant to say was that damned ladder, i.e. the theological term that God does damn some things. And I meant to say this, the system, this wisdom is damned. But what I said instead, and on my paper, I said damned, but what I said instead, because I was in the role was damn. And then my own children, like their takeaway was, oh, you said a bad word in the sermon. And so I really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be like whatever self-flagellating about it, but I really, we talk a lot sometimes in preaching about how sometimes you can have an illustration or a turn of phrase that in and of itself is so powerful or so like interesting or so shocking that it actually doesn't serve the act of preaching at all. It prevents people from hearing what you what say. What you're after trying that. to say. And so I was like, I just really regret that I made that slip because for my own children, and it makes sense, right? Like if you're a teenager and the preacher says, damn, like that is what you're going to focus on. And so I just, I've just been thinking about that and just like how hard it is as a pastor to be sort of what, like you're always trying to find a way to say things that people have heard before and to like scrape off the barnacles of familiarity and to like help people recover. Like this is amazing. This is astonishing. And so you need story and you need illustrations and you need to like shock people and wake people up. But 
if you go too far <laughs> and you need to be able to take risks, but if you're going to do that, then there are going to be occasions when you like just miss it in, and that's just, you know, that's just part of it. And so, I mean, I was talking to you about this on the walk and you were asking like, oh, did people say anything to you about it afterwards? And no, I mean, other than my own children, like no one said anything to me, but I, because I think people at the Grove are just really mature and generous and they don't expect me to be perfect and they, they have a lot of grace for me and they want me to like swing big. And so I think they, and so I'm just really grateful for that. Um, but I also just, I, you know, I would hate it if that was the conversation that people were having afterwards. I mean, and whatever, God can use all things. And so I'm not going to go crazy about it, but it's just ironic that we were using that passage from Corinthians where Paul is saying like, I've been called to preach the gospel and not with wisdom and eloquence. And I think what he's saying there is I'm pre called to preach the gospel of the cross, but not in a way that makes people think, say, Oh, that was an amazing sermon or you're an amazing preacher. Like, I don't want to empty the cross of the power, like the power doesn't lie in the preaching moment. The power doesn't lie in how the preacher gets you to feel emotionally. The power lies in the thing you're talking about. Yes. And so that is the real danger is that on the one thing, you got to use this method of preaching to get people to look at the thing you're talking about. And, and, and so you can't, you, you, you can't play it safe. You can't rely on, you know, platitudes or, or, you know, just things that people have heard a million times before that you can't get in trouble for saying, like you have to, you, you have to just give honor to the glory of what you're talking about. And also you can just, it's dangerous stuff. So that's, that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. All of that is true. And it's amazing how, you know, Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, you're still thinking about the sermon that you preach. I, I wish I had said, I wish I hadn't said, I mean, that just happens every week, but then you have something like what you're talking about. It, it magnifies, intensifies that struggle. Yeah, so yeah. And it, and it is important in that way to say like, okay, I want to learn from this. Like if I, in the future, I probably would not write the word damned or damn, <laughs> damn in my sermon, just because the just because you learn from it. And then also just to recognize that actually none of this is about you and mm. no, there's no way that any slip of the tongue that you make can undo the power of the thing that's actually at work in your community. And so you yes. can just go, okay, you know, well, lesson if learned, it's any consolation, um, I made a shift in not only preaching, but in how I lead worship by giving myself five slips of the tongue every Sunday oh. <laughs> because I realized I was, I was seeking to be perfect mm -hmm. in my delivery, in every word. And over time it was wooden. Mm -hmm. It was devoid of life. It just was inauthentic. And, um, when I said, okay, you know what? I am going to mess up sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say some things and afterward think, mm, wish I hadn't have said that. I'm going to mispronounce words. Oh, I was editing yeah. the podcast last week. And for some reason, for the first three minutes, I could not say the word podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't And I'm sure everyone heard it. And I, I was just mortified. I was like, you know what? Okay. 
whatever. Right. And I do think that when we are really deeply centered and mature in the idea that like the center of our lives isn't us. And so it doesn't matter. Right. And but I think it's really is really hard. And and then to be able to say, like, I wanted I want to do well. I want to please the Lord. I want, you know, and also there's just a way where it is actually good and healthy for our egos just to be like, yep, mm, biffed it. Like I, you know, and yeah, so that, so that's what I am thinking, was thinking about. And this Sunday is Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, which is really, I love Palm Sunday so, so, I've grown so, to love so it. much. At first, the first few years of ministry, first decade or so of ministry, I just thought, uh, it's okay. It's this thing we do. And, you know, the churches I served, you know, someone would make little crosses out of palm leaves and, um, okay, call me shallow. I know. I'm like, you're going to mess up my suit painting that thing on <laughs> my suit, right? And, uh, you know, and you, you sing particular songs uh, on that Sunday. But now... Love it. Okay, I interrupted. Keep going. Well, I love Palm Sunday because we have really, I believe that we in the church, this is my, the size of my ego, I believe that we in the church have really misunderstood and wrongly focused this that day. That day. So on Palm Sunday, it is traditional that you preach the entrance, Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem and Correct. you call it Palm Sunday because in one of the four gospel accounts, all four gospel accounts uh, contain this moment, but only one of them actually mentions people um, waving palms Correct. and putting down palms. The rest, there's a, there's a parade, there's an entrance. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one element of the story that is consistent through all four gospels is that Jesus chooses to enter into the city on that donkey. on a donkey and so for me i think and we actually did it this year like just in our marketing or like it's donkey sunday like come to donkey sunday because i think you know palms it it is this it it, it is a little bit like giving up chocolate for lent it's like this it's this thing that you do because you do it and it and you know it takes up a lot of time and mental energy like how do we find the palms and how what do we do with the palms and how do we fold the palms and but you're not yes. really asking the question of like but why are we yes. doing this and point? what does this mean when i just think like it, but palms that kind of makes us feel like we're insiders and we have this like special symbol that people don't really get and even though we're people like we still can pretend that we're not people but and the donkey First of all, you cannot miss the meaning of the donkey, that the donkey is a service animal and the donkey will go places that other animals won't go. And the donkey is about, you know, humility. And there's this contrast between the, a donkey and a, and a war horse and a military equipment. And, and so this idea, but we don't like donkey because donkey Sunday just doesn't sound as elevated and elite as Palm Sunday. And I think that's the point is that Jesus was calling people away from what appears to be into what's real. And the, and the way of Jesus is a way of service. And Jesus is consistently saying, you know, the greatest among you are the ones who serve. And so by choosing to enter into the city on donkey, Jesus is saying, you know, this is what you need to see as honorable. This is what you need to celebrate. And the text highlights the misunderstanding of the people of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So when he rode in on a donkey, they 
understood or they knew the prophecies that said or the prophecy that said Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. But they thought it meant, okay, he's going to be, okay, we see he's on a donkey now, but here's the conquering king. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to do all of the things that we think he's going to do not thinking that, oh, he's going to be the suffering servant who dies on the cross. They totally misunderstand. Right. It was like, like he's riding a donkey, but that doesn't have anything to do with who he is and what he's doing. Correct. So we're back to, I'm a vegetarian, but I eat bacon. Yes. He's riding in here on a donkey, but he's still here to like kill people and destroy people and act like every other emperor. And I think, you know, this is the ancient message when Jesus, when the prophet Zechariah, right? Yes. Who says the Messiah will enter into the city. Zechariah 9.9. He's going to ride in on a donkey. And it wasn't like the secret bat signal, right? Like he wasn't saying, I'm okay, telling you, you this so good. you will recognize. He's saying, I am telling you what a Messiah is and how a Messiah will lead yeah. and what the values of the kingdom are. And because we don't want to hear that, yeah. because we don't want to hear that, we say this means nothing and let's focus on the palms instead of saying like, no, this Jesus is saying, my kingdom is among you, but it is radically different, radical to the root, like going back to the root and the heart of who God is. And in the kingdom of God, power is used not to dominate, not to control, but to protect and lift up the weak and, and to serve, right? And so this is, this is the way of God. So it is the way of God's Messiah. And because we've traded the truth for a lie, we just can't see it or refuse to see it and so bring down judgment on ourselves because I think our whole lives we're always confused about and you know a lot of people can just go from Palm Sunday which is kind of like Easter light straight to Easter Sunday from celebration to celebration and miss everything in the middle and then like sort of scratch their heads and go like I wonder why the people were so happy to see him on Sunday and shout and crucify him on Friday and like because he didn't turn out to be who they wanted yeah so when they didn't know him they could project all their desires upon him and say, I'm with you because you are going to give me what I want. And there's one theory that says that the reason Judas betrayed him was not because he hated Jesus, not because he wanted to see him crucified, but he thought that if he could provoke Jesus by getting him arrested, that then... It, he would do all of the things. Right. He would show his power. He would call down angels. He would rain fire down upon the Romans. He would then take the throne of Israel in a way that he imagined. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's a, um, it's an amazing story. And I do think, like this week, or I think for me, the, the, the hook, the emphasis is like, you can't get to the cross without a donkey. Like, you cannot understand... Mm -hmm the salvation of Jesus until you understand why he rode on a donkey. And we as a people keep choosing and following terrible leaders because we continue to despise people who show up as servant leaders. Mm. And so we, you know, if you want better leaders, follow better leaders. But if you can insist on seeing the people with the most who use their power to elevate themselves, if you insist on seeing that as a sign of their worth, then you are going to get the person that you chose. Yeah, we tend to venerate servant leaders after they're dead. Sure, sure. Well, and I think, you know, we like people who serve us. We just don't respect them. So, 
that's a problem. So anyway, and, and I will say this, I think for people who see the way of Jesus, you've got to be willing to be misunderstood. You got to be willing to be overlooked. You got to be, I mean, like the question isn't why won't they see me? The question is why won't you continue to be faithful with a glad and cheerful heart, knowing that God sees you and what everybody else sees is none of your business. That's a word. That's a word. That's good. Well, thanks for listening to us this week. Um, we will talk to you next week, right? Even we're still friends. We're, we're st- okay. <laughs> Just <laughs> next week is Holy Week, but we still need to figure out what our figure out our life. So we will still talk to you uh, next Sunday, next Tuesday. So we hope you listen. Um, if you want next Sunday to find out what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Prez, you can go there for worship at eleven o'clock. You can check out their YouTube channel and their podcast on the Podbeam website. And this Sunday, you will hear an amazing sermon by Nicole Thompson, That's who's true. preaching at the Grove. Nicole Thompson is a member of the Grove community, but she is preaching for Yolando this Sunday, which is um, amazing. And uh, you can go to their website, which is www.deridachurch.faithlifesites.com. Oh, man. every It's like a little test every week. <laughs> um, and if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, and you can check out our YouTube channel and our podcast, which is on iTunes or, you know, wherever you get your podcasts, just look for the green tree because there are lots of groves out there. Um, or you can worship with us at 10 a.m. where the dress code is wear clothes. And this Sunday, everyone who worships at the Grove gets a free donkey. I'm not even kidding. Come to the Grove. We'll give you a donkey. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. <laughs>